giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robot Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host, Chad Pytel, and with me today is Camille Fournier, CTO, author, speaker, entrepreneur, and now managing director and head of platform engineering at Two Sigma. Camille, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. Camille, what is Two Sigma? Two Sigma is a financial services company in New York City. It is uh, primarily a hedge fund. Um, although we do a lot of things, we also have a venture arm and uh, and an insurance uh, an insurance startup arm. So um, it's a very interesting, very extremely technical company here in New York. So I'm sure we'll get into it. You you came from more of a startup background in terms mm-hmm. of Rent the Runway and that sort of thing. But what attracted you to to Sigma? You know, uh, it was the people. The people were just awesome. Um, I was recruited. So I run a large division uh, in the company. And I remember meeting the CTO just for like a informal chat, get to know you. And I was very impressed by him, both as a computer scientist and, and sort of technical side, and also as a manager. He's actually a very, you know, really sharp manager. And I was like, wow, it's really rare that you meet someone who is so strong in both of those areas that that's a good sign. And, and everyone else I met at the company was just uh, amazing. So it seemed like a great opportunity. Are the problems that you work on different than you have in the past? Actually, I'm, this is a little bit of a like return to form for me. So I worked at Goldman Sachs for a long time before I joined Rent the Runway. And at Goldman, I did a lot of... Um, a lot of sort of distributed systems and and platform infrastructure. And I now run platform engineering here, which, you know, involves compute and storage and, you know, software development tools. And this is actually a bunch of things that I've worked with on and off throughout my entire career. And Mm -hmm. and it's an area that I consider myself to have a lot of expertise in. So So maybe I've got the whole thing backwards and should be asking you what attracted you to rent the runway. Well, yes, that is that was definitely the... um, the, the career departure for me in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. I think what attracted me to Rent the Runway was that I thought it was a really good business idea that just, it made sense. So, you know, Rent the Runway, right? You rent designer dresses and accessories. And it was an idea where when I explained it to any woman I knew, they immediately got it. You didn't take more than a couple of sentences for them to be like, oh yeah, that I, you know, they wouldn't all use it necessarily, right? Some of them were like, right. oh, I don't know if I'd ever do that. But they all understood why that was a useful thing to do. And so when I was approached by Rent the Runway, it was clear that the business idea was valuable, that people wanted this um, and that they had made some decent progress in building the business. It was still early, but not you know, the, the very, very beginning. Um, but they had a lot of challenges in the technology and in scaling the technical platforms. And you know, I was like, this is great. Like, I can help with the technical problems. I can solve the technical problems. And, you know, going to a startup that you feel relatively sure about the business and you really bought in, I think is a, you know, is a good decision. It was a good decision because um, it is a good business. It, ha- it has continued to be a strong and growing business. Um, and so that's why I made that jump. What was your position when you joined Rent the Runway? So I actually joined as the director of infrastructure engineering, um, yeah. which was sort of all there back in systems services. We, uh, when I joined, they were in this very monolithic old Drupal platform, which was, you know, part of their scaling challenges. 
And, you know, I joined to help uh, move the company from that to um, services and microservices architecture, um, which I did successfully. But I started out just as the director of infrastructure and, and ended up taking over the team and, and growing to be the CTO. What was that path like for you? Um, it, it was tough. <laughs> you know, on the one hand, I got to grow really fast. Um, I certainly didn't expect to go from, you know, about a year in was when I ended up kind of taking over the team and and growing it and growing it from, you know, whatever, 10 or 15 people to eventually being about 65 in engineering. Um, I certainly didn't expect to go through all of that in, in a little less than four years. You know, for me, it was a really rapid growth in responsibilities. But it was, I mean, it was exciting. I learned so much. You know, I learned every advanced stage of management in that process. That's part of why I wrote a book on engineering management was that, you know, I really got to go through it you know, it's spending long enough at each stage where I learned something, but short enough that it was really still fresh on my mind when I, when I mm-hmm. left the when I left the company and and guiding other people through those stages myself, and so it was it was a very rapid growth experience. I but I'm very glad that I did it. Yeah. So you mentioned the book, which is a great transition. Would you say that the ideas that are in the book came from the experience, or that experience was where you got to? put your ideas to work? I would say it's a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. You know, part of the reason I took a position at Rent the Runway also was that I had been at Goldman and I had done some management there and I had done a lot of senior IC work, uh, individual contributor work, and I wanted to have a much bigger impact. And, you know, Goldman being a big company, it's a little bit of a, you know, wait your turn kind of place, right? So, you know, I was getting a little impatient for waiting my turn. I was like, I can keep doing this. This is a you know, this is a stable career, but I want to go somewhere where I can grow faster. Um, and I believe that I can be a good leader. I believe that I can, you know, be a good manager as well as a great engineer. And so I definitely came in with some ideas of what it meant to be a good leader and a good manager and a good strategist and all of those things. And I would say I learned a lot about what, which of my ideas were realistic and which of them were sort of glib. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, many of them being, you know, many of them being really like the devil is in the details. Once you actually start doing the job, it's easy to say, oh, well, you know, I'm I'm smart and, you know, kind of charming and I know a lot about tech and so I'm going to be a good leader and people are going to want to work for me. And and the reality was I had to learn a lot of details about like, hey, that's, that stuff helps certainly, but like it is not what gets you through the tough times when, you know, the team is stressed out, when you're stressed out. When things aren't aren't going just totally smooth sailing in the business, you have to actually learn a lot of strategies for how to motivate people, how to inspire them, how to get the right work done, all of that. And so I definitely had to like really fill in a lot of gaps in in knowledge and understanding that I wasn't I don't think I would say I was expecting to when I first started out. I found myself saying the other day to one of the team members here, we both recognize like what the ideal would be in this situation. But that's not today. Yeah. Today, here's what we need to do. And hopefully tomorrow we will be able to do the ideal by getting through today. Yeah. What were some of those kinds of compromises or things you may have learned along the way? So a lot of them were as an engineer. So I had, you know, the strongest ideas of what I wanted as an engineer. And I had very, very high standards. I still have high standards for what I think good engineering, particularly good engineering for systems that are going to have to have to run and be supported in prod. I'm sort of a detail oriented person in those matters. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, so I kind of had these expectations that we were going to 
that we were going to, you know, test our code really well, that we were going to build these really production hardened systems, that we were going to have had the time to really think about them and design them really well and that they would need to scale in certain ways. And, and we had to kind of come out of the gate with these really good, well-baked, you know, well-tested whatever systems. And, you know, what I learned slowly, painfully over time was that, first of all, like that's not easy to do with a skeleton staff of a startup. Um, mm-hmm. And you've got a million other things going on. You've got systems that are you know, that are already running that you need to continue to support, that your team is not necessarily all experts in distributed systems like you. And so, you know, they don't necessarily do the right thing from the beginning. And actually, sometimes it doesn't matter that they didn't do the right thing. <laughs> that mm-hmm. in fact, you know, what you're trying to do is build a business and you kind of need to get good enough on the tech side and not perfect. Um, especially when your business isn't, you're not selling technology, right? We were not selling technology. We were selling, you know, the experience of renting clothing and accessories. And what we really needed to be able to do was to move fast and to build new features and, you know, to be, you know, basically correct enough, you know, good enough so that things weren't always falling down and we could, we could handle our customers and they were getting good experiences. But, you know, frankly, the occasional bug is not the end of the world in that situation. And that was a big, I think that was a big learning experience for me of kind of relaxing a little bit and learning how to move faster and, you know, where it was okay to cut corners and where it wasn't and where to be easier on people for not doing the right thing and, and for not, you know, not knowing the perfect way to build something the first time, which is just a totally unrealistic thing to expect of anyone. What was the scale of Rent the Run? I, sometimes we work with startups and there's a lot of concern about, you know, the engineering behind it and scalability and performance. And we say, you don't have any users yet. <laughs> yeah. But rent the runway scaled pretty quickly. So you did have those concerns, right? Yeah, we did. I mean, I, the thing is like we had users. Yes, we had thousands mm-hmm. of users at any at any moment is very, very different than tens of thousands or millions, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I think that there was definitely a period of time where even scaling to thousands of users was hard. And, mm-hmm. and in fact, when I joined in 2011, it was not a solved problem as to how to do that easily with a with a dynamic website that had a lot of stuff on it that you know wasn't just like sort of simply cached pages or whatever right Mm -hmm. but very quickly you know people put attention to that problem and kind of figured out how to do it like nowadays it would be very 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 easy to set something up that would scale that well Mm -hmm. right you just you know you would use a bunch of cloud services you know you put a cdn in front of it and you you'd be fine um it just it, it wouldn't be that much of a concern now the scaling we also had to scale the warehouse and so scaling to deal with people doing workflows on physical items is actually, I think, probably still to this day, it's not It's not that the technology itself needs to be so scalable, but it is the understanding of the problem that you're solving and, and building technology to work with the humans to solve that problem is still, I think, a pretty interesting and challenging problem, no matter, you know, where you're solving it. But at the time, we had some scaling challenges. And it you know, a lot of it was just due to the old infrastructure that we were building on where we had these, you know, sessions that were sticky to servers. And so you couldn't just, you know, scale out the servers because people would lose their session. I mean, it was, mm-hmm. you know, it was just all kinds of like classic early days of the modern web scaling mistakes that, that had been made in, in the long distant past that we had to unwind. Mm-hmm. Um, so we did have users and we did have some scaling problems, but it was, certainly wasn't anything compared to like scaling Twitter, for example. Right. Is there anything that you, either technical or team or people-wise, where 
in hindsight you would do it differently or you you made a mistake at the time? Yeah, there are plenty of things um, that I would do differently across a whole bunch of different dimensions. So I would say that one of the things that I, I didn't really know anything about API design when I came in at, at all. And so a lot of our early services and a lot of the early, like, you know, as we move to this sort of service infrastructure now, I'm extremely proud of the fact that we were able to do that successfully. So I, I think it was actually, uh, you know, many people are not able to re-architect a, a, a successful system in the way that we were able to do it. But the thing that we came out with was not exactly beautiful. <laughs> so we moved out of this old cruddy Drupal thing, but we had, you know, the the web serving tier was in not Rails, but sort of a, a more stripped down Ruby that really lacked, lacked a lot of useful functionality that we probably should have just had Rails. Um, we didn't really have any kind of clean API for them to talk to. So they were talking to the APIs of a bunch of different backend services. And at the time, I was like, well, this is the most performant way of doing this. But, you know, in reality, like, it didn't matter. <laughs> that didn't matter. And it would have made their lives a lot easier to have a much more thoughtful API that would have made it easy to build the front ends against and not, you know, just struggle with a lot of correctness bugs because of the challenge of like understanding how the API worked. Those are some of the technical challenges that mm-hmm. I made early on that I, you know, I think have been corrected at this point. But like, you know, like definitely it wasn't a wasn't the most straightforward thing. You know, on the people side, I think learning how to hire well and how to grow a team effectively is challenging. I think I actually did a pretty good job, but I definitely, you know, hired a few people that were, you know, definitely had had a few cases of the brilliant jerk where, you know, we had people who were who were really smart and could be very productive but were very destructive to the team. Mm-hmm. And I think at this point in my career I'm a lot more particular about that aspect of things. I also think that I one of the major lessons that I learned in Rent the Runway was the importance of what like what culture fit really means and the value of it. And, you know, what it really means is that you're hiring people who are going to be successful within this company because they have the attitude that this company likes. And every company is a little bit different, right? Mm -hmm. My current company is very like, you know, sort of scientific and nerdy and um, people who are have a very scientific mindset are going to do very well here. Mm -hmm. And, you know, hackers may or may not do so well. People who Mm -hmm. are who are mostly concerned with, you know, that kind of thing may or may not do so well. At Rent the Runway, we were we were concerned with a lot of different things. But you know, frankly, one of them was positivity and like the attitude that you bring to work being a can do, like we can figure this out. And that's not a universal trait of engineers. Um, and so things like that, learning, learning that those, that those cultural values that the company had actually really were important and that people who had more of those values were more likely to be successful than equally smart people who didn't share those values. So when you say that you feel like at this point in your time, you're more willing to address, be proactive about addressing when someone's not a team fit. What what does that mean to you, like practically? Is that having honest conversations with them early, or, or is it something else? Yeah, it's it's a it's a bunch of things. I think it's first of all like being clear with yourself and your team what a team fit is and mm-hmm. what you care about. I think as an as an early leader, at least for me, and I think many people fall into this, you're a little scared to set guidelines and to be kind of firm about like, look, on this team, we all do support and we don't complain about it. Like this is just part of the job. I don't want to hear you complaining about it. Like if you don't want to do support, this isn't the right team for you to be on. For an example, 
not to say mm-hmm. that this, this applies to either of these companies. Or, you know, we value, you know, we value operational excellence. We value people who care about customers and have some customer empathy and are actually interested in the product that we're building. And that these are things that like, we want you to have to some degree, at least, and at least, you know, be willing to kind of put on a, a, a brave face about them and, and care about them. And if you really don't agree with these things being important, you're probably not going to be a fit. Um, and so I think it starts by being clear about what the things that make someone work well on a team are, like what the important values of your culture are. Um, and that can be very hard for new leaders who just aren't comfortable putting those lines in the sand a little bit. Mm-hmm. But then for me, what this means at this point is, you know, okay, so I'm, I'm much more comfortable saying this is who we are. This is what our team does. This is how, how we do it. And then having honest conversations with people about, you know, when they aren't really aligned with what we are and saying, look, are you, is this really the right place for you? Is this what you want to be doing? You know, you keep either doing or not doing this thing that, you know, is kind of putting you out of step with your peers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we want you to be successful. And if you keep doing that, you're not going to be successful. So, you know, is the right thing to do to move to another team? Do you want to change? Do you want coaching? Um, those kinds of things. I find that, and let me know if you, you find this as well, but that the more clear you are when you are in that situation, the problem is usually obvious to people, or or maybe not obvious, but they, they feel it as well. They feel that something's not right. Yeah, I agree. I, sometimes you have to convince them, like sometimes they mm-hmm. want it to be right a lot. Right. Like they really, they're invested in like, but, you know, I built this team and like, you know, I'm invested in helping them be successful, even though it's making me miserable because I just don't actually care about this kind of work. Mm-hmm. Um, that's an example that I've seen definitely in the past, or it's like, you know, someone who really cares about people and they want to do the right thing for their team, but it's just not the right thing for them. And they don't realize that everyone can tell that it's not the right thing for them. And they're mm-hmm. not actually doing their team favors by forcing themselves to stay in this position that's making them kind of unhappy. I think that example is an interesting one because you're framing an example where maybe it's changed over time that the way the team works now and what it needs now is different than when they first started or when they were building the team or the business is in a different spot, the company's in a different spot. Yeah, that is absolutely true. I think, you know, I think you see this very obviously at startups, right? Mm -hmm. Um, The people who are going to be really successful in the very early days of a startup are not necessarily the people who are going to be successful as the startup is kind of entering its middle years and it's a lot more stable and starts to become a grown-up company. And that, that you know, can be very painful for people who are just, they love to hack and they love to be in the environment where they know everything that's going on. They know everyone, you know, they, they have fingers in all the pies and it can be very uncomfortable for them to realize like that's simply impossible with the size of the company that it is now. And mm-hmm sometimes the right thing for people in that situation to do is to find a new company that's small where they can go back to being involved in everything and, and helping with everything and, you know, putting their fingers in all the pies and not, and not driving everyone around them crazy because, you know, because the company is just not the right size for that anymore. Speaking of which, do you still code? Very, very rarely. I Mm -hmm. can, and I do it often enough to remind myself that I can. Um, But my technical work most of mostly these days is I do a lot more code reviews. Um, even that I don't do all that much, but I do it some, um, a lot more architecture reviews and sort of technical strategy and that side of things. Mm-hmm. 
Are you comfortable with that change? At this point, I am. I, I would say, you know, it took me at least a year to f- not feel bad, like almost every day that I wasn't coding. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think that's pretty common. Like it, it's, it's a very uncomfortable transition for most people who like coding and who are good at it to really get used to being hands off, uh, you know, but it just like, I kept being like, this is just not the right use of my time. I'm actually slowing people down by doing this, or I'm setting myself up to support something that I cannot possibly actually find the time to support. Like mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of if you build it, you kind of own it and you, and you take, you know, pride of ownership and support for things. You don't just throw them over to someone else to mm-hmm. hang on to. And that makes me feel like I can't build things that I don't have the time to support. And if my time is completely taken up, you know, 90% with meetings and whatever, it's just not fair for me to, to take the building work and then, and then give the supporting work to other people. Yeah. How many people report to you now? My team's about 90 now. How many direct reports? Direct reports is six. Okay. Do you feel like that's a good number? Yes. Um, for me, I find that I scale pretty well to about six direct reports. Mm-hmm. I can do more than that, but every additional one you add is getting a little bit less of my time and energy. Yeah. And that can be okay depending on who your direct reports are um, and what they're doing. And you know, But it is really, really hard for me to scale because I, I do try to give each of my direct reports like a reasonable amount of my time and focus and energy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I, and I try to do a good job with them, both as helping with their teams and their parts of the organization, but also, you know, with their careers and their, you know, their goals. So what are some of the things you do as a manager to help them with that? Do you do one-on-ones? Yep. I, of course, I do one-on-ones every week with each of my direct reports. I think that, so my general rule of thumb is like, weekly is best. I mm-hmm. I will do every other week if it is, for example, for a period of time, I didn't have a head of product for my organization. And so I was managing a couple of product managers directly. And we did every other week one-on-ones because, you know, on the one hand, like they needed to talk to their manager regularly. And that was me for the time being. But we also knew that this was a, you know, a temporary situation. And so we sort of compromised on, okay, like you're going to get some of my attention. I'm not going to like leave you hanging, but we all, we also realized that I can't give you quite the amount of attention that I'm giving the people who report to me, who manage 20 people and who have a whole org that they need to, they need my help mm-hmm. with. Um, but one-on-ones, I think are really a critical, critical part of being a good manager. Obviously, um, or maybe not so obviously, but we're, we're both tech people. And so we don't have the perspective of how managing if we weren't technical people <laughs> is, but maybe we can guess <laughs> what is different about managing technical people or being a technical person who turns into a manager. I mean, one of my theses is, is that managing of engineers is a technical discipline and that it's best done by technical people. You know, obviously there you reach a limit where that's not realistic at every company, right? Like I, you know, when I was at Rent the Runway, my boss was not technical. She was right. Uh, you know, had a Harvard MBA, you know, very, very smart person, but not, did not have any kind of computer science background. But I think that for most engineers, having a manager who who was an engineer who has has done their job is pretty important. I, I think it's important for a lot of reasons. I think, you know, one of the reasons is just that people want to work for someone that they feel like appreciates the work that they're doing. You know, so much of your job as a manager is is guiding the team to, to do their work effectively. And it's hard to know what it means to do work effectively as an engineer if you've never done that work yourself. 
if you've never written code, it's not obvious what's hard about that, mm -hmm. what slows people down. It's not obvious really what that job is like if you've never done that job. You know, also because so much of your job as a manager is evaluating people, right? That's a, that's an important thing that we ask managers to do. And how do you evaluate the work of an engineer if you don't have any sense of what good work looks like? Um, because good work is not always totally obvious from just the interface that you see as a user, right? It's in the mm -hmm. maintainability, the scalability. It's in, you know, how easy it is for other engineers to, to work with the code. All of these things are, are important and they, they vary in importance depending on the project. But, you know, engineers want to be evaluated by people that they feel like understand their work and can actually sort of appreciate it. So, so I also think that's a, that's important, you know, again, more at the lower levels, but, you know, I think the, the final thing is that at the more senior levels for managing engineering teams and organizations, you know, you tend to want managers who, who, who understand the tech industry and kind of the, where things are going from a technical perspective. And that can, you know, apply in different ways, right? It could be that you're an expert in machine learning or, you know, you know a lot about the cloud or whatever, right? But you have to have some kind of like reasonably strong technical underpinnings to be able to tell what is vaporware or not real or not, not really high quality from things that are actually, you know, important industry movers. And, and I think, you know, teams really resonate and respect with people that they believe are leading them in the right direction technically from a strategic point of view. I think they just, I think if you want to manage really good engineers, you need people who are technical um, over them to, you know, up through several levels of management. Mm -hmm. So as an individual contributor, what should someone expect from their manager? That maybe is the most obvious things that sometimes we don't get. So, I mean, I think the first one is one-on-ones. I think managers who don't do one-on-ones are just neglecting a huge part of their job. Um, and it's, it's sadly common. I mean, I've definitely had bad managers who never did one-on-ones and like, it, it was just like, what are, what are we doing? <laughs> what, what, what is your job if you're not ever talking to me? Mm -hmm. You know, so they should be, you should be talking to that person regularly because you have a relationship and you, you know, you have an interpersonal relationship that needs to be formed, needs to be fostered, that you need to be able to build trust with that person. You know, you should expect that you're going to get some kind of feedback from your manager about, you know, what's going well, what's not going well. That's part of their job is giving you, is giving you feedback and paying enough attention to you to be able to give you feedback. So I think that's another thing you should expect that seems relatively obvious. Workplace guidance is the third thing. So your manager should understand the ways of your workplace. And even if they're a new manager, this is the kind of thing you expect managers to be able to to pick up pretty quickly and, and run with, right? They should know if you want to get promoted, what's the process here? You know, if you want to get a raise, when do we do that kind of thing? If you've got grievances, who do you talk to in HR? How do we resolve these kinds of things? There's, there's lots of different elements of navigating the workplace. And part of manager's jobs is just to make it you know, possible to know where those things are and to, and to guide their employees. And then, you know, good managers can do some kinds of coaching and career guidance, either themselves or kind of pointing people to resources and providing those resources. Um, it's not always possible for your manager to be the person who coaches you. You know, if you want to learn something very specific that they don't have any expertise in, they're not going to be able to give you that directly, but they should know where to go to find it, right? Whether it's, oh, you can go to this conference or this training or, you know, go talk to Sally on that team. She's actually an expert in that and she can be a mentor to you. So do you feel like you do a good job with all of those things now? I think I do 
you know, I think one-on-ones, yes. And feedback, yes. I'm, I have worked very hard to get good at giving feedback and mm-hmm. giving feedback in a timely manner. It's not easy. It takes practice. Um, but that's something I feel relatively good about. I think I do a fine job with workplace guidance. You know, I'm not always the most, I, some managers I think are better at getting people promoted than I am. I'm definitely not like a super, super political manager in that mm-hmm. way. And it's something I could probably do better. And then, you know, I think my, probably my, my weakest area in some sense is coaching. I didn't have to remind myself to do that. I'm very mm-hmm. often, um, just really enjoy the work and talking about like what the teams are doing and the strategy and the technical challenges. And so I can get very caught up in those details and not spend enough time on my directs necessarily as people and what they're, you know, individually thinking. And so mm-hmm. I have to remind myself to do that. And I'm not always as good at that at that mm-hmm. facet of it. How did you get better at feedback? You said practice, but how, how do you practice that? I think you're forced to in some mm-hmm. senses. So like, you know, especially at a startup where startups tend to be high stakes and you, even when they're not perfect on accountability, like, especially at, at a C-level position in a startup, like if you're not delivering, you're, you're going to get fired, right? It's just too high stakes. A good CEO is not going to let you know, a CTO or a VP of engineering who isn't getting their team to deliver stuff, they're not going to let that person just like coast for a long time. Right. Um, and so, you know, you, you start to realize that like, I, I can't afford to not have hard conversations with people about, you know, their team isn't delivering or, you know, they are being disruptive or, you know, you, you start to, you start to get into that. And then on the flip side, you also get practice with the hard conversations of, you know, this person wants more money and we don't have more money to give because <laughs> we're a startup and we're not, you know, just flush with cash all the time. And so, you know, having those sort of tricky negotiation conversations where, you know, they really want something and you can't give it to them now, but you might be able to, you know, find maybe a better project for them or give them a promise that in six months you can reevaluate. So I do think that it is a benefit to being at a startup where you're you're forced to have a lot of hard conversations. And if you don't have them well, like people just get disappointed with you and they quit or you get fired. Like, so, you know, you do have to kind of get reasonably good at that through practice. But, you know, I also have had a lot of coaching and I've worked with a couple of different coaches that help me with this. So when I know that I have to give someone hard feedback, I practice. And to this day, I practice. Like I don't, I don't expect to be able to off the cuff give people exactly the feedback that they need. I take it very seriously. And if I have something like really big where I want someone to change something, I don't want them to just quit or feel totally demoralized. Mm -hmm. I spend a lot of time thinking about how I'm going to give them that feedback in the way that maybe they'll be able to hear it and act on it without feeling totally defensive or, you know, undermined. Uh, So I do think there's just a lot, a lot of that, a lot of it is also practicing and taking it seriously and kind of recognizing when you need to give feedback and being mindful about it. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned coaches. Is that one of your go-to methods for when you identify an area that you need to improve in seeking out coaching? Yes, definitely. I seek out coaching and I also seek out a lot of like peer feedback from my really from friends who are not don't work with me directly, mm-hmm. um, but who are, you know, fellow CTOs or, you know, other engineering leaders or even sometimes ICs that I just happen to be friends with that, you know, when I want to get a perspective from someone who might be you know, like someone working on one of my teams, like, you know, how do you think this is going to go if I say it this way, or if I present this information to the wider team? Are, you know, are people going to take it well? Because I can't always tell 
you know, I, I can try to put myself in, the, in their shoes, but it's helpful to have someone who's writing code, even if they're not on my team, and say, like, I'm going to, you know, present this message. What do you think you would, what questions would you have or what feedback would you have for this? Um, so I find getting feedback from other people, whether it's a coach or friends, to be a really important way for me to develop my skills. Mm-hmm. So this is a very hypothetical question. So if it's a stupid question, we don't need to go. <laughs> but I, I'm curious, say you had an idea to start a new product or a new company today. In that hypothetical situation, what do you think your natural, okay, here's the team I want to build. Here's how I want to go about it. Here's the things I would do differently as a founder based on what I know today. Oh, so I don't know if I have a great answer to that completely. Mm-hmm. But I know that I would be looking for people who were hungry and creative. Mm-hmm. A hungry, creative, and, and generally positive. Yeah. I would be looking at, for that far and away above academic credentials, you know, fancy companies they've worked for, any of that stuff. I would be looking a lot more for kind of raw, just energy and, you know, excitement for whatever it was we were building. Um, communication skills and collaboration skills, I think I would also be looking really, you know, a lot for if I was going to hire, um, you know, on the more experienced side, I would probably look for people who have done startups some that are kind of familiar with what, what it means to do a startup, mm-hmm. um, as well as people who maybe haven't, but who are eager to try, who have like, feel like they have something to prove and, you know, aren't just like, oh, well, I could go back to Google and get paid even more in, you know, I, like they'll just take me back without interviewing me for the next two mm-hmm. years. So like, it's like, like I want people who feel like they have something to prove who actually have some skin in the game a little bit more than people who are just like really very comfortable with that wherever they go, because, you know, you do want people to, to invest and commit to whatever it is you're building. Mm-hmm. And the thing about startups is that it's no matter how great you are, how great the idea is, it's going to be hard a lot of times you know, and, and there's just no getting around that. And, you know, I, what I wouldn't do is, you know, try to be like, oh, well, everyone's who's doing this, you have to be, you know, committed to working 80 hour weeks and sleeping in the office and blah, blah, blah. Like that I'm actually less interested in. I'm, I'm interested mm-hmm. in people. Obviously you have to be willing to put yourself out there and there, there's going to be crunches when you're at a startup, but I'm, but I don't want people who are, you know, only going to be fair weather friends. You know, I want people who are willing to take the good and the bad a little bit and be, you know, be a bit stoic about like, this is the journey. You know, this is not a, this is not just an easy, smooth sailing, awesome thing. This is going to be rough. So those are, those are some of the things that I would look for, Mm -hmm. but definitely that like scrappy energy, you know, creativity and collaboration. I think that's so important. Now, obviously I've made up this scenario and the answer to this is probably dependent on what the company actually was going to do. But would your default be to expect that you would have a non-technical co-founder or do you feel ready or able to take on the role of founder and CEO and be responsible for everything? That is a great question. So I actually, um, in between joining my current company and leaving Rent the Runway, I spent a year and a half off and I wrote a book and did a bunch of other things. But I, I thought I spent a lot of time thinking about starting a company in that period of time. Mm-hmm. And I talked to a lot of potential co-founders and played with a bunch of different ideas. And I don't totally know the answer to that. So I would say that like I wanted to be the CEO. 
And I think that part of me says, I would like to do that, that part of the job, right? And part of me is like, I just don't, on the other hand, like I'm not very good at sales, which is mm -hmm. a hugely important part of startup CEO as a job. And I find very, I find it very uncomfortable and I'm sure it's something I could get better at. So I'm actually very torn on that because the, the mm -hmm. thing that I worry about, I would worry about is that the CEO does have outsized impact on mm -hmm. the company. Even if maybe you have equal equal shares of equity and whatever else, you know, the CEO can have a much larger cultural impact on the company. And I really care a lot about building a company with a good culture. I care a lot about treating people well and behaving, you know, ethically. And, and I think that's one of the things where you can get into a lot of stress if you're having to, you know, when you're under a lot of pressure and you're having to cut corners in various places, like it's very easy for those to be the corners that you cut. And I don't know how well I would do partnering with a CEO who decided to cut, you know, like ethical or behavioral right. corners that I didn't agree with. Yeah. So I'm, I'm actually very torn on that issue. <laughs> mm -hmm. I talked to uh, David Cancel, the CEO of Drift, a few episodes ago, and you know, he was CTO um, and transitioned into CEO roles. And it sounds like talking to him, he wasn't entirely comfortable with that until he found something else that he realized was just as valuable or more that he was really good at for the companies he was founding. Yeah. And for him, that turned out to be marketing and product vision kind of stuff. And for myself, you know, it's a similar thing. And, and I think that's maybe what you're saying as well. It's like, what else would I do except what I'm uniquely suited to do, which is be CTL right now. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think I'm a, I think I'm a good leader and I'm a good business strategist. Mm -hmm. I actually think I could be a COO. Right. I think the thing that would be challenging for me in a CEO role really is the sales part of the founding, which is, so, I mean, frankly, like there is a reason that most companies have extremely, you know, uh, reality distortion field CEOs who are just like, you know, they, they say things and you leave the room and you're like, what happened in there? Like, I just, right. I just couldn't help but agree with this person, even though, you know, yep. now that I look back on it, I just don't understand what I was agreeing to or why I was agreeing so much. Mm -hmm. And that is the one thing that I do not have that might mm -hmm. be super essential to being a successful CEO of a, of a startup. Um, yeah. The ability to lie. <laughs> no, I, don't, I don't want to say I'm, the ability I'm to kidding, lie. I'm I just kidding. think it's, you know, I think like I think that like unwavering belief that you can change the world in like yeah. a really big way that like kind of defies logic. That's a hard, mm -hmm. I think that's a hard thing for technical people to do. <laughs> to I think it is. We tend to be around. very pragmatic. Um, one of my biggest fears is to be seen as hypocritical or to put something out there and say, this is the way we should be doing it, but then to be called on like, well, we're not actually doing that. Um, yeah. That really scares me. Yeah, same. But, you know, that is important for, for selling a vision because you're mm -hmm. not going to actually be living that vision for a long time, right? You're going to, you know, that's, VCs aren't investing in, in just what you have like right now. They're, they're right. investing in something that they, they think if you do it right over time can grow into something huge. And, and that means you have to be willing to talk about a thing you don't know that you can necessarily do. You just have to believe it. <laughs> Well, Camille, uh, your book is called The Manager's Path. It's available everywhere books are sold. Yep. <laughs> Mostly Amazon. Yes. <laughs> if people want to uh, get in touch with you or follow you, where's the best place to do that? 
Twitter is probably I'm where I'm most active. I'm at S-K-A-M-I-L-L-E, Scamille, and that's the easiest place to find me. I also blog occasionally, and that's all linked to my Twitter profile. But I think if you Google me, you'll also find me pretty easily. Yeah, those are those are probably the best ways to get in touch. Excellent. You can subscribe to the show and find notes for this episode at giantrobots.fm. If you have questions or comments, email us at hosts at giantrobots.fm. And you can find me on Twitter at cpytel. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Tom Obarski. Thank you, Camille. Thank you. And see you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.